So we are continuing the series we started several weeks ago now with a season in the minors, and we, again, are started with just the foundation of prophets and who the prophets are, why do we have them, why do we have these, these prophetic books in our Bible, and, and yet we are focusing again on the minor prophets in this series, and the minor, are, they are the last 12 books in the Old Testament. Um, they're books that are uh, easy to ignore, and one, just because a lot of them are really small books, so it's easy to kind of flip through and not even know they're there. Uh, but also is, uh, again, the, the role of the prophet was to hear a message from God and then deliver it to whatever audience that they were told to give it to and, and to, just to explain things that were going on or how God was working or whatever it might be. And, and again, these were, all of these books were written literally hundreds of years before Christ came. And, and so it, it's easy to focus on the after Jesus part of our faith and of God's redemptive story. And, and yet there's, there's such a rich truths and things about God's character and about his plans and, and the way that God acts that are all still true in the minor prophets and the major prophets and Old Testament books that we can glean from uh, even today in 2021. So I said, we're just going through just some of the specific books. We started after that first week of introduction, we went to the book of Micah, uh, and then we last week we looked at Obadiah. Today we are looking at the book of Joel, and then actually next week is actually our final week of this series, uh, and then we start our Advent series, and we're into Christmas. So, uh, But with that, we're going to look at Joel today, so if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to the book of Joel, and um, it is uh, three chapters long, so it is a little longer than one we looked at last week with Obadiah, but uh, still a very short book, so if we find Joel, uh, you know, an interesting thing about Joel is, as you see it there in the top of the description, that it is foretelling and foretelling, general messianic and end times prophecy, it has all of them in it. And, and they're all jammed into three chapters, which I think as we look at that, we see these different categories and, 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 um, and purposes, right, that we have for the prophetic books. And, and the, the, as we look at Joel, again, it fulfills all of them in kind of different ways. Um, before we jump into Joel, as we read it today, we're going to read some chunks of the text today because Joel is, is actually just very beautiful writing. Um, it's, it's a, it is a poetic book. It's kind of written in a poetic style. And, and again, we, of course, have the translated version, right, of, of Joel. And, and again, in the original language, it was a lot more poetic than it is in, comes through in, in English. And again, some of those nuances are lost, right, in the translation. But, but it's still very beautiful writing. And, and, and part of that poetic style is that it, it can be applied in lots of different ways. And, and as we look at that and just the, the ex, expansion, right, of what it, not only the original context of what it meant, but also how it applies to other things. And, and now the original context of Joel um, was about one very specific uh, time in Israel's history. It was it was following a, a, a horrible um, locust plague, right? And this is when, again, they had, I mean, these locusts, right? I mean, these insects, right, came through and literally ravaged the entire nation. I mean, it destroyed their crops, I mean, which was the foundation of their economy, I mean, and they, there was nothing left. And then the aftermath of these locusts coming through and destroying everything, uh, the aftermath of that was drought and fire and all those things. I mean, this was, this was a very tough time in Israel's history. And, and, and the context of it, again, is very clear that Joel is explaining, right, the kind of the, 
um, what's going on right now. And, and, and that's where we start with Joel. And, and we, we see as we jump into it, and even as we look at especially the first chapter, as it describes this locust plague, and, and as God calls out some of the spiritual leaders of the time, and, and saying to this, you know, come to this, that God is at work through this. And again, it describes the droughts and the fires and, and the, the prayers that are, that are they're being called to as, as the religious leaders of the time. But, but Joel, again, as we see all of this doom and gloom, and as we read Joel, that's literally the way it starts. I mean, everything stinks. Okay, and that's exactly where we start with Joel, is that, that Joel starts with recognizing and admitting that we are in very tough times. Now, as, as you see this, we're like, okay, it's kind of, so Joel is just calling out the obvious, and yet, it probably really isn't true. I mean, you think about how many times, though, do we find ourselves, even in the midst of tough times or, or in the midst of struggle, that we're just afraid to admit it. And, and a lot of times, if maybe you found that, I know that's been true in my life, of, of times of struggle, times when I don't know the answers, times when, when uh, just it's hard to keep going, sometimes it, it's very helpful and therapeutic and to be able to move forward, just to admit that everything stinks. Right? And, and just coming to that place of, of just identifying the elephant in the room, right? And just the, the thing that everybody sees but nobody wants to say. And this is where Joel just kind of lays out. He's like, hey, this is a horrible time. I mean, all these locusts came through. They invaded our fields and our houses and just all, they just destroyed everything. And now after that, it, it went from bad to worse, right? And just all of the drought and, and just these are very, very tough times. And, and Joel just calls out the obvious. And we see that, and yet it is a lot of doom and gloom, and we, we start to reading it, and I don't know if you read ahead and kind of read it for yourself before you came here today, you start reading, you're like, man, this is, this is a depressing book. And, and it is, that's where it starts out. I mean, it is, because just, it was horrible times, and Joel starts that recognizing and admitting it. And, and then we move out of chapter one into verse, or chapter two, chapter two, verse one. Okay, where, where we see Joel say, he says, Sound the trumpet in Jerusalem, raise the alarm on my holy mountain, let everyone tremble in fear, because the day of the Lord is upon us. Okay, now he, again, is stating just how horrible the time are, that it's this really tough time, we're recognizing, we're admitting that it's bad, and now he comes to this and he says, all right, let's just call everybody together, we're all going to mutually agree that this is horrible, Okay, but not only that, but the, the day of the Lord is here. Okay, now this phrase, this day of the Lord, this is a phrase that, that, hap, that is used several times in the book of Joel, but not just in Joel. This is one we see throughout all of Scripture. In fact, when we see the day of the Lord, this is a phrase that is not a positive phrase. Okay, this is a phrase of acknowledging that God's judgment and wrath is being poured out upon us. This is the day of reckoning, right? This is when God has had enough, right? And, and again, we all, we've been there. If you're a parent, you've been there, right? And it's like, okay, we're done, right? I'm not, we're, this is it, okay? Time, I mean, consequences are coming, right? And this is the moment, again, where Joel is telling Jerusalem, he's like, God's mad, right? And God is fed up. 
And, and again, this day of the Lord, it is the time of judgment by God. And anytime we see this phrase, just know, like, again, it's not a positive thing. Right? It's when the, the, that we learn and remember, and that's, again, the, just the, the character and the theology of who God is. And that's when we, re, we remember that God is sovereign, that he is God, we are not, he makes the rules, we mess it up, and he gets angry. Okay? And, and this is, again, a theme through all of, all of the prophets, right? Because that's usually when the prophets spoke up, was when God was angry and they were facing judgment. And, and this is exactly the situation here, that again, that, that he, he calls out, right, that God is just because he is holy and we are not, and we continue to mess a lot of stuff up, and so now it is God's role to discipline and to judge. Now, this text is very clear. You cannot get around it in the book of Joel, that God is causing all of this havoc in their lives. Okay, it is very clear in the text. Now, to say that, right, that, that again, that this locust plague, all the aftermath, uh, it was coming in direct uh, caused by God in his judgment. Now, I'll tell you, this is a pretty common view of God, even in our world today, right, that, that God is mean, right, that God is just up there watching us, waiting for us to mess up so he can smite us. Right? And this is, again, the feeling that we, that we get out of Joel. And, and to tell you, like, there's, uh, we can see where you get to that. And people feel that way. I mean, people feel that way today. Maybe you felt that way at different times. Yeah, and to say that, that, that um, again, that's a common view of God, but, but that's not the whole truth, right? I mean, God is sovereign, right? And God is just, and he does have the right because he's the creator. He makes the rules to discipline, and to judge, and to pour out his wrath, and all of that is true. Okay? But to say is that God takes some, some blame that God doesn't deserve. Okay? Because the reality, even within Israel at this time, is that, that what's happening in Israel is there because of their choices, not because of God's. Right, that, that um, again, so a lot of times things are blamed on God that God isn't doing. I mean, and, and there's, that, now God can cause things in your life to get your attention. That's exactly what he's doing here to Israel. He's trying to get their attention. Right, but yeah, God can cause those, and, and he does. But not every bad thing, never evil thing that is, happens to us in this world, or the evil in this world, is not caused by God. There is a very big difference between God causing things and God allowing things. Now again, that's, that's let's just say, there's a big difference between God causing things and God allowing things. And, and that's, uh, there's a big difference, one that we don't really have a lot of time to go into today, but one that's probably for a different sermon. But to say there's a big difference between those things. And, and to say that some of the, the evil and the disease and the horrible things in our world today, God's not causing. It's there because, because we are in a fallen, evil, sinful world. Right? And evil runs rampant. And that's the blame of where it's caused. Now, again, some of the chaos in our own lives and, and judgment we feel, uh, the reality, some of the blame lands on us, right? Not on God. I mean, it's, we, ch- we choose it for ourselves. In fact, we are really good at messing stuff up, right? And, and, and so some of it, again, we see that in a lot of times, whether it's our own fault, whether it's just the evil in the world, or, or whether it is God causing it, sometimes that's all we do is just shake our finger at God and blame him. And again, that's, that's not always fair. 
Now, let's say that. Again, there's, as we move from that, we see, uh, again, that, that there is evil in a world, that we have free will, that there are lots of terrible things that happen in this world that God doesn't cause. But yet God can use everything because God is sovereign and he is in control. He is the king. And we know that God can also stop it. He can heal it. He can reverse it. He can do anything God wants to do. And that's why it's important as we see that to, to realize that even when we get into Joel and all the doom and gloom and, and this portrayal that God is just a mean God, as you see that, we have to keep reading because that is not the whole of the story in Joel. In fact, we see that as, as we gear that, that Joel kind of turns a corner here after this in chapter 2, that, that he moves from all the doom and gloom and calling out the obvious, and we move to, and that we see that Joel identifies that there is a spiritual element to our problems. Now, whether God causes it, or whether God allows it, or whether we do it ourselves, or it's just the evil and the enemy rampant in our world, that is where we end up, that there, there is a spiritual element to every one of your problems. Because we are spiritual people. We were created in God's image. Right? And, and, and again, no matter where we're at, there is a spiritual things involved. And, and as we realize that, as Joel calls this out to them, he's like, Israel, wake up, right? Like, like God is trying to get your attention. And we see in, in Joel 2, verse 11, where he says, he says, the Lord is at the head of the column. He leads them with a shout. This is his mighty army, and they follow his orders. The day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Who can possibly survive? And again, Joel is just acknowledging that God is God, and we are not. That he's actually the one in control, not us. Right? And, and as he, he identifies this, right, again, we see this phrase again, the day of the Lord. And this is a very, very interesting and intriguing phrase, right, where he says the day of the Lord is an awesome, terrible thing. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that makes me think, like, how can something be awesome and terrible all at the same time? Right? That doesn't seem like that fits. And saying it doesn't, and yet I believe that what Joel says here is absolutely 100% true. Right? When we look at even just who God is and the way he works and his, his judgment and his love, right, is that, that it, is, it, it is an awesome thing to see a powerful God be powerful. Right? It is an awesome thing to think that the creator of the universe cares about me. Right? There, there's this awe and this reverence that comes with just God being God and us being us. Right? And, and that again, just, just, that is an awesome thing. And yet, also, right, it, it can be a terrible thing. It, as you see, right, I mean, the scripture says it is a horrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Right? Because God is just and he is sovereign and he is holy. And again, we fall short of that. And we deserve discipline and judgment. I mean, that's what we have earned from God. Right? And that's a terrible thing. And as we see that, this, this kind of dichotomy that we naturally live in, right, as people of God, that, that we have this, again, this scripture uses this phrase of the fear of God. 
right? That it is awesome and terrible all at the same time. And this is a, a tension that we have to live with in ways, right? In a relationship with that God. And as we think about this tension and about this, again, the fear of the Lord and how fear is, it's not fear, but it's like a reverent fear, a love, right? And, and again, what does all that mean? And, and like, how do we even put that into words? And like, how, how do we describe that, that, that love, that tension that we feel? And, and again, because we can't, that's kind of where that perspective of God comes from, right? That God's just mean and judgmental, right? Is because we can't rectify that in our own hearts, like, how do you put words to that? And, and I'll tell you, is it was one of my just favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. It just speaks directly to this. And, and I tell you, C.S. Lewis, he's a very classic Christian author. He was not a theologian. He was uh, actually a journalist. And like, but he brought in a lot of his really fresh perspectives of who God was and how he interacts with the world. And, and again, all of his writings are, are fascinating. And say again, very classic Christian writer. If, if you haven't read anything of him, his most famous work is called Mere Christianity. They say that. I encourage you to read it. If you do, though, just know it's old language. Okay? It's kind of hard reading. And like, but if you get through it, it's, it's very interesting. Now, he, but he wrote a lot of things. And like I said, Mere Christianity was his most kind of most famous kind of theological work. But he also wrote some children's books. Okay? And these children's books, the, his most famous of those is the, the Chronicles of Narnia. And the very first book in that series is called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And now, again, this is this, this kind of allegory story, and these kids end up in this, this world, Narnia, right? And there's animals talking, kind of all this stuff. But, but it's all this allegory for who God is and how he interacts with us. And, and there's, there's a point in the story, right, where the girl first gets there and, and interacting with these beavers, and then they take her, they're going to take her to go see the king, that, to, that, which is the Jesus figure in the story. Okay, and so in this story, Jesus is a lion. His name is Aslan. And now and there, there's this, this part, this interaction between this girl and these, these beavers that kind of sets up this quote. And, and again, she sees, and they're taking her to see the king because they don't know what to do. She doesn't know why she's there. They don't, they don't know why she's, you know, they're kind of figuring this out. And they're like, we're going to take you to the king. Okay, so they go there and she sees from this, and then she sees that, that Aslan is a lion and she is scared. And she's like, well, I can't go see a lion, like, because all those same fears, right, that comes out, if we saw a lion, an uncaged lion in front of us, right, like, we would have the same reaction, right, this is not safe. Right? And that's exactly the reaction she has, and, and then she comes out, she's like, what, that's not safe, I can't go see him, he's not safe. And then this is the quote that comes out of that, she says, or the beavers actually say, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And this is this tension again that we live in, right? God is not safe. But he's all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is holy, and we are not, right? He is in charge, and we are not. God is not safe. But he's good. And he's loving. And he's gracious. He's merciful. And he's not safe. And in fact, I don't know about you, but I don't want to serve a safe God. Right? He's not safe, but he is good. And this is this tension that we live in, right? Of, of if God is not just here to smite me, or I wait for me, no, because he's also good. 
I mean, he's not safe, right? Because he could. He has the power to do that. And sometimes he needs to use that power to get our attention. He's not safe, right? But he is good. And he's loving and all those things. And, and this is where we see, even in Joel, that, that, that Joel then moves this. And this is why we have to keep reading in Joel. We have to get through the whole book. Because, because here Joel moves to this next phase of the good side of God. Not, this, everything is horrible. He's judge, judging us. And, and he's caused us. And, and everything's in chaos. And it's terrible. And yet it's also awesome. right? Because it's awesome because God has a plan to redeem us. And we see in Joel that then Joel starts to lay out God's plan of redemption. And we end up in this terrible place, right, under God's wrath. And yet he says, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that God also has a plan to redeem you. And this is the section where we get into this, where, where we start to see both categories and all three purposes of the prophecy here, and how it, it's, it's applied not just in their one situation in this where Joel calls out, but, but it, it's, it's applied in so many other ways and so many contexts, and, and which again, even to the fact where we even study it in 2021, and it's still incredibly relevant. Right, and we see this plan of redemption as, as Joel lays it out. Um, we see again that, that even this plays in, foreshadows this messianic tone of God's ultimate plan to redeem us all. Right, the plan through Jesus, as we know now, looking back at it, that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, but these Joel literally laid this out hundreds of years before Christ was born. And this plan of redemption has always been God's plan because God is not only just and wrathful, but God is loving and gracious. And we see the same plan play out, not just through the Old Testament books, into the Gospels, into the New Testament, but, but again, it, it is, it, this is the thread that runs through all of Scripture of God's plan of redemption. And as Joel lays out these steps for Israel to walk through, these are exactly the same steps that described for us and how we follow Jesus today. And so as we, I wanna, we're going to walk through these four steps that Joel gives us. And as we do that, again, we're going to look at the step he gives. We're going to read it, again, in this poetic fashion out of Joel. And then we're going to see now how does that translate to us now after Jesus. Hey, we're going to start off. Step one in this plan of redemption we see is, is a call to repentance. That's step one, is a call to repentance. This is God calling us, right? God speaks. Okay, we're going to read Joel uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. And he says, That is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. I mean, who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. Perhaps you will be able to offer grain and wine to the Lord as you did before. We see that God's calling them to repentance here. He's saying, hey, yes, things are horrible, but guess what? That's not the end of the story, right? Like God wants to redeem you. 
He says, all you do is just surrender your hearts to him. And you know, we talked about it even in these last few weeks and kind of alluded to it. That Again, this is the same thing that keeps coming up, and, and which is true through all of Scripture, not just the prophets. Right? That when God talks about our, ac- our outward actions or our situations, it's not about our actions at all. It's actually about our heart. And that's, notice that's exactly what this call to redemption here is about. He says it's, it's not just about the horrible situation right, that you're in. It's not just about how... how you know, the, your wrongful actions. He says, I don't, I, that's not what I want. What I want is your heart. Don't just do the right things, but give me who you are. It's always about our heart. Right? And that's why, again, following Jesus is, is not about a religion of doing the right things, but following Jesus is about a relationship with your creator because it is about your heart, not about your actions. Now, when our heart changes, that flows out into our actions, right? But, but again, we'll, we'll get to that here in a few steps. And as we see here, this call to repentance. And what does that look like now after Jesus? Okay, this call to repentance is now when we hear the gospel message. Again, the gospel message, right? The story of Jesus, of his life, of his, his death, of his resurrection, uh, of how he, he, he is the fulfillment of the plan of redemption. Right? And when we hear the gospel message, what it means to us is the literal translation of the word gospel is good news. Okay, and that's exactly what it is. Especially when you're apart from God and you've never received Christ as your Savior. You know, if, if you've know, never joined the journey of faith, right? It's the best news you'll ever hear. And yet it's still good news even after you receive Christ because we still turn to the gospel every day as we walk with God in the journey. Because that gospel is still good the best news we can ever find. Because we continue to mess up, right? And God transforms our heart, then we always go back to the gospel. Right? There's a call to, redempt, to repentance, right? And that's the hearing of the gospel. And then Joel moves on to step two, and the next step he gives us is now it is time for action. Right? We can hear who God is. We can hear how much he loves. We can hear his plan of redemption. We can hear all of those things. But just hearing it doesn't really change anything. Right now it is time for action. And, and he calls again Israel to, to action. He's like, now that we see the big picture and why this is all happening, we see in verses 15 through 17, he calls them to do something. He says, blow the ram's horn in Jerusalem. Announce a time of fasting. Call all the people together for a solemn meeting. Gather all the people, the elders, the children, even the babies. Call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. Let the priests who minister in the Lord's presence stand and weep between the entry room to the temple and the altar, and let them pray. Spare your people, Lord. Don't let your special possession become an object of mockery. Don't let them become a joke for unbelieving foreigners who say, has the God of Israel left them? Again, he's calling into action. He says, gather everybody together, right? Like, pray, submit, like, like, ask for forgiveness. I mean, come to the just submit, right? Do, do something. And, and as we see that, he's saying, like, again, we hear the gospel message, and then, then we still have to do something. And that's at the core of it, is just hearing about God does not save us. Right? But yet we have to accept Christ as our Savior. And that is the action that we take, right? After Jesus, we accept Christ as our Savior. Just showing up to church does not save you. 
Right? But again, God has already paved the way. He has the plan has been fulfilled through Jesus. But, but we have to accept that gift of salvation. And we do that by believing in our heart and confessing with our mouth. Right? And asking Jesus into our life. Confessing our sin, receiving his mercy and grace and forgiveness. Right? And, and making God the king of our heart. We accept Christ as our Savior, and that's the call to action. And that time, as he's telling them, then he said that time is now, and that is true. Again, if you are are here and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I will tell you the time for you to do that is now. And then after we've we've moved to action and we we see Christ as our Savior, then we see the next step that Joel gives us is, is is the restoration of communion with God. That, that relationship is now um, healed, right? It is, it is redeemed. It's brought back. It's, it's made whole again. It's, we have this restoration of communion with God. Okay, verses 18 through 20 in chapter 2. He says, Then the Lord will pity his people and jealousy uh, guard the honor of this land. And the Lord will reply, look, I am sending you grain and new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy your needs. You will no longer be an object of mockery among the surrounding nations. I will drive away these armies from the north and send them into the parched wastelands. Those in the front will be driven into the Dead Sea and those at the rear into the Mediterranean. The stench of their rotting bodies will rise over the land. Yuck. But yet we see again through this this is language we see that, that God is saying, but guess what? When you're back with me, when our, our communion is restored, when that relationship is healed, now everything will change. Right? The, the, we are restored to that relationship, and now I start working for you. And God's power is unleashed right into not just the lives of Israel. That's exactly what Joel says will happen. Then now God's power will go before you. Right? And, and God's power can do everything that you couldn't do. And that's the same thing we get after Jesus, is that by God's power, we are saved and everything starts to change. Now, the key, again, is this, is God's power. I mean, that's at the core of the gospel message, that we cannot save ourselves. That's why we need a Messiah. And it's by God's power that we are saved, and it's by God's power that we are changed. And, that we, and it's by God's power. Again, he is God, right? He is, he is awesome. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He is in full control. He can do anything. Nothing is impossible for God. We have to rely on his power, not my own. And that's how things start to change. Because once my heart is surrendered, and then it starts to be transformed, and as my heart is transformed, it moves outwardly to every other area of my life. And then we move to step four. As he says, as we do that, as we, we learn to surrender ourselves to God's power, right? And, and things start to change. And as they do, we just, we just give God the glory, which is step four. And that is to live a life of praise and obedience. We now move in this new direction be with God's power, and then we live in, in a life of praise and obedience. We see as Joel continues in verse 20 through verse 27, he says, Surely the Lord has done great things. 
Don't be afraid, my people. Be glad now and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Don't be afraid, you animals of the field, for the wilderness pastures will soon be green. The trees will again be filled with fruit. Fig trees and grapevines will be loaded down once more. Rejoice, you people of Jerusalem. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for the rain he sends demonstrates his faithfulness. Once more, the autumn rains will come, as well as the rains of spring. The threshing floors will again be piled high with grain, and the presses will overflow with new wine and olive oil. The Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, the stripping locusts, the cutting locusts. It was I who sent this great destroying army against you. And once again, you will have all the food you want and you will praise the Lord your God who does these miracles for you. Never again will my people be disgraced. Then you will know that I am among my people Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. And never again will my people be disgraced. Wow. Right, everything changes. And, and again, knowing that, that what happens is they live in obedience and, and in praise, right? That, that God says, I will restore it all to better than it was before. Right, and, and we see that, that they were then moving to just this new life in, in, in God with this ongoing relationship. And that's what we find after Jesus is that as we live a life of praise and obedience, then we find new life in Christ. And God makes everything new and it reaches every area of our life. Right? And yet what's different here is, is again, the, is our perspective. Because our, remember, what did we give up? We gave up our hearts. Right? And when our, we give up our hearts, then we give up our perspective. We give up our selfishness about doing everything for us. And instead of just working to glorify ourselves, we now acknowledge that God is giving us these provisions. Right? That they're coming from him. It's not by myself. Right? It's God, God's power. And as he gives that, that I just push the glory back to him. Right? And that everything that I get and even given to abundance is overflowing in my life is not used for my own selfish gain, but is used for him and for his glory and to build his kingdom because he is the king, not me. Right? And as we live in this life of praise and obedience, we acknowledge him right? and his provision and we use everything he puts in our lives to carry out and fulfill his will. And nothing is ever the same because I find new life in serving my God. And I'm not working for myself and my own selfish ambitions any longer, but to glorify him and to give him the glory because that's where the glory is due. And as we look at all of this and we see these steps, and, and yet as we look at the signs again uh, of the coming of the Lord and, and this process that comes through, the reality is this is not just about when we first find Jesus. But as we continue in our journey of faith, this is where we go through the same process, these same steps, even if we feel stalled in our faith, even if we get distracted from who God is and, and, and I, you know, things aren't going great, we go through these same steps. There's this call to repentance. And then it's time for us to move to action. And, and then we find this restored communion with God, right? As we surrender ourselves to him or whatever sin God calls out or whatever it is. And then we rely on God's power and to change. And then I live a life of praise and obedience in this new direction that God gives me. And so no matter where you are in your faith, whether you don't even have a faith and you're going to receive Christ for the first time and join the journey of faith, or whether you're in the journey, these four steps are vitally important. 
because we always need the gospel. And we see that Joel moves to this, this, these signs of the coming of the Lord and, and how the Holy Spirit starts to work. And this, we come to the most famously quoted verses in all of Joel. And it's in Joel 2, 28 and 29. Where he says, Then after doing all of these things, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. In those days, I will pour out my Spirit even on servants, men and women alike. Again, this passage, again, is quoted several times throughout Scripture. In fact, the most famous one is, is in Acts 2 at the Pentecost, when the first time the Holy Spirit is poured out, and Peter literally quotes this in Acts 2, verses 17 to 21. Yeah, we see it again, this, again, we're living by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? And that's an ongoing thing in our lives. And, and again, we see that, again, that God works in ways that we can't even fathom or acknowledge or ever do on our own. And this is the same process, again, that God uses in our lives wherever you are at in your faith journey. If you drift from the path or camping out in your faith for too long, this is the same plan that God get, uses to get us back on track. And again, I don't know where you're at in your faith journey today. You know, maybe, again, you're just at the place where you just need to admit that everything stinks. Right? And that you need God. Maybe you've never received Christ your Savior, but if, if you have never done that, I will tell you is that today is the day. It's time for action. If you have received Christ your Savior, but you felt stalled in your faith or just, you know, where you're at, then, I mean, go turn to the same thing, right? The, the, today is the day. Repent and move forward. Maybe you're just living your life in, in obedience and praise, and if that's where you are, then, then keep going, right? And just keep pointing back to the God, the provider of all things, as you walk and fulfill his will and everything he's calling you to do. And we see here that the book ends as we move into chapter three, as he calls again the day of judgment, as, as he kind of calls out the, the final coming of Christ and, and the end of the world and, and how, again, we, we end into that final judgment. And, and again, the, the Joel, I mean, even portrays all of that. And, and yet we see how, how so much of Joel has already been fulfilled in different ways through history. And yet, again, we see in that that this, it's, some of it is still yet to be fulfilled, right? Or it will be fulfilled again. Yeah, and as we see that, I just know, again, the call uh, now from Joel that we hear for us today in 2021 is it's time to move forward. It is time for action. Wherever you find yourself in your life, in your faith journey, it is time for action. God is calling to you to redemption. What is going to be your response? And as we think about that, again, the challenge, like I said, wherever you're at, I hope that whether it's receiving Christ as your Savior or just moving forward in your faith or just praising him for what it is, maybe it's stepping up to be baptized like Ted and Sue did today, right? What, I don't know, whatever the next step of your journey is, take it. Because today's the day. And I want to bring this again to these, um, what I think should be the most famous verses of Joel. And that is our final thought for today, is Joel 2, verses 12 and 13. Where he says, that is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Turn to me now when there's time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, 
slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. Wherever you're at in your faith journey today, the day is now. There is still time. Take a step. Yeah, wherever you're at, I just hope that you can commit to that step, right? And take that step. And Lord God, we thank you that no matter where we are, no matter what we're facing in our life, no matter, Lord, how awesome or terrifying things feel right now, God, that you're ready to come. God, that you come with a, with a plan of redemption to save us from wherever we are. And God, we praise you for the God that you are. Lord, a God that's not safe, but a God that is good and loving and merciful and gracious. God, we thank you that you come no matter where we're at. Lord, no matter what's caused the chaos in our life, God, you are there to change it and redeem it. And we thank you for that today. And we claim that promise today. And God, as we go this week, I pray, Lord, that we will show this world who you really are. God, that you are not safe, but good. And that you have plan for their life too. And God, may they look at us, Lord, as followers of you, as servants of the one true king, and, and Lord, be drawn to you. God, that they can surrender themselves the same way. God, we thank you that you are the answer, God, no matter what the chaos in our life is, you're the answer. And we thank you for that. And Lord, as we go this week, help us to live out those truths every day. Guide us as we go, as we represent you well, as we are your church and live out our faith every day. Guide us through this week. In Jesus' name we pray.